0: Some of the guys have kind of modest followings, but nothing like you see in from NFL players and NBA players. And I, I think I'm worried about that most of all. That that baseball has to figure out a way to market these guys to where um, they they attract new fans, because otherwise you start to baseball starts to become like other 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 facets of life where. When the fan base gets older and older, then you run the risk of reaching a point at some point where, where you're a lot less relevant. And now,
1: Grant Napier. So great to have you on. If you don't like that with Grant Napier, it is brought to you by Roy's Umbrella. Roy's Umbrella for all of your home loans. If you're refinancing, take advantage of the low rates and take advantage of working with Roy and his great staff. I have for a number of years. It's like working with family. And, you know, there's no surprises at the end of the line, folks. No extra charges. You know what you're getting with Roy. Again, go to roysumbrella.com for all of your home loan needs. That's roysumbrella.com. My guest, on the podcast today is really a fixture. He's an institution at the Sacramento Bee. He is also a member of the Baseball Writers Association of America. And he and I basically broke into the Sacramento market around the same time. It is an absolute pleasure to welcome Marcos Breton of the Sacramento Bee to the podcast. Marcos, it's great to talk to you. How are you? Grant, it's great to be with you. How about that? Huh? What is it? 30 years for you now at the Bee?
0: 30 years. Wow. I, I landed in Sacramento probably like a year to 18 months after you did. I got here in November of 89 and if someone had told me back then that I would still be here 30 mm-hmm. years later, I would have laughed, but uh, it just worked out that way.
1: Well, I've got good news for you. You've got a chance to beat me in longevity if you can make it for two more years. <laughs> well, that
0: county not We'll 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 see how it goes, but yeah, it's been a long time.
1: A hey, long time. you know, when we talk about the B, and we talk about the newspaper industry in this country and around the world. For somebody that is a newspaper guy, thick and thin, or whatever you want to call it, through and through, how sad is it to see what has gone on in that industry?
0: Well, that's what I've lived. It's been really tough to see. And like, if you're talking in the context of sports, sports coverage, the first big blow was when some of the big sports organizations, you know, with pretty famous call letters began to really produce their own content. And so they began to draw writers away. And then the speed of that has accelerated. And then as newspapers began having difficulty with revenues, you began to see a winnowing down of beat writers. Like I'm based in Northern California. And when I was first covering sports there are all these individual newspapers that all had individual beat writers covering San Francisco Giants the Oakland A's or and and name any market and it was the same deal and so what has happened is little by little by little that those numbers have shrunk and then big powerful websites have come come on board and stolen away or lured away hired away some of the major beat writers so you name a, a major writer covering the nba or the nfl or major league baseball and they were newspaper people at one time uh, and now chances are they're working for some other entity and so that's been the last 15 years and really accelerated a lot within the last 10.
1: you love baseball you're a member of the baseball writers association of america we're going to talk about that in in a few moments but where did your love of baseball begin from
0: well so it was two prong. i mean one like you, like a lot of people, my dad turned me on to the game, taking me to uh, my first ball game at, at the age of eight. In fact, I remember when I was six, he tried to get me into baseball. And at that time, I was like really a football guy. My, my father was never a football fan. and was very disappointed in his son at age six, like football and not baseball. But by eight, I, I caught the baseball bug. I was playing Little League like a lot of guys. And then so going to the games with my father became just a major thing for us and then as i got a little older i noticed that the best writing in sports were in baseball and these were the great old days of sports illustrated when that brand really was at the height of its powers and just unbelievable baseball writers and writers then had the access to tell great stories about the players and 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 recreate great games and and so in newspapers then had you know, writers who wrote just beautiful game stories. And so I fell in love with all that stuff. You know, probably the the sports that were written about the best were baseball, followed by boxing, followed by horse racing. And obviously, boxing and horse racing have seen better days. And they're not quite the influential sports that they used to be. Baseball isn't as influential as it was, but the writing Continued for a time and i think there's still great writing in baseball but it's sort of moved toward more analytics and i'm not an analytics hater by any stretch but i do admit that uh, that i miss the great game stories that you used to read uh, in the big broadsheet papers and i do miss uh, the deep dive that you used to read more of back in the day
1: baseball to me was such a huge part of my life growing up in New York. I was so blessed as a kid to see Mickey Mantle play at Yankee Stadium. And I always tell the story in Little League, we used to fight, not fight, fist fight but we used to fight and we used to play you know games to see who would get to wear number seven in little league I mean it was a huge day I I remember going to bat day as a kid at Yankee Stadium and going through the turnstile and you were just praying that you would get a bat with Mickey Mantle's signature on it you didn't want Tom Trash or you didn't want Horace Clark or Joe Pepitone you wanted Mickey Mantle who were your favorites growing up who did you idolize growing up as a kid
0: well so I was lucky enough to see the tail end of Willie Mays' career and the first time that I went to Candlestick Park just being mesmerized by Willie Mays and Willie McCovey and you know number 24 number 44 and the first game the first baseball outing for me and I I went back and I looked up the date I found the box scores it was a doubleheader a Sunday doubleheader that they used to have in the great old days it was June 6th 1971 in Candlestick Park and it was the Philadelphia Phillies against the Giants the Phillies won the first game, one nothing. Steve Stone, now a broadcasting fame, was a hard luck loser for the Giants. People forget that he began his career as a Giants pitcher. And then the second game went into extra innings, went 12 innings. My father and I saw 21 innings of baseball that day. And it, the second game was one when Willie Mays hit a home run over the left field wall as a walk off. And I've always told people that nothing has ever topped that since mm-hmm. then. That I got to see. Now in 1971, you know, Willie Mays was 40 and it was his last full year with the Giants, but I'm I was really blessed that I got to see him. So then it became pretty lean years after that and luckily we had the the great Oakland A's teams of the 72, 73, 74, three straight, you know, a really underrated dynasty and and uh I was a big Reggie Jackson guy and then and then I followed him. So so I was a Yankee fan for the period of time that Reggie was in pinstripes and yesterday was the, the anniversary of his three home runs against the Dodgers in game six of the 77 world series. I remember watching that Keith Jackson and Howard Cosell on the call and just being electrified by his ability. So I, I feel like I was lucky that I got to watch, you know, the tail end of Mays and Clemente. And I saw, you know, Johnny bench who to this day, in my opinion, is the greatest catcher who ever lived. And, a big red machine. And for me, you know, I, I knew who he was and I got to meet him at Arco arena later, <laughs> got a real taste of who he was, uh, uh, who he could be sometimes, but as a player, Reggie Jackson was just someone who I just couldn't take my eyes off of. And I, those memories are, are really sacred for me.
1: You know, the Yankees and the Dodgers, 77 and 78, both six game series, the, 78 series, I remember it so well, because that was the year that the Yankees were 13-and-a-half back of the Red Sox in July, caught up. Uh, They had the four-game sweep at Fenway in September, which has been named the Boston Massacre. Ron Guidry with the uh, playoff win. Again, we talk about Keith Jackson. He was on the call for that game. Guidry that year was 25-and-3. But the thing that was interesting about that year, and I segue back to the newspaper business, when Billy Martin was fired that year and in the middle of the season, replaced by Bob Lemon, it coincided with the New York tabloids being on strike for the rest of the summer. Yes. And, you know, you talk about the Bronx Zoo and all of that and not having the post, the news, having the tabloids in the locker room. And again, I don't know how much you would go along with this, but they, they said it calmed the clubhouse down and that that was a reason, not the sole reason, but but it was a reason why the Yankees were able to make that comeback because it really limited the distractions in that clubhouse. Do you buy that?
0: I do only because I've gotten a taste of that New York press scene in the times that I covered the playoffs involving in that case, the early two thousands when the Oakland A's two years in a row, they faced the Yankees in the divisional series and the Yankees prevailed both times. And I had never seen anything like um, the crush of media uh, at Yankee playoff games. And um, and then, you know, I really followed, uh, uh, I've always had a real fascination with New York, it was my favorite American city, and with New York baseball, and I've read everything there was to, to read about the Yankees dynasties, particularly from 49 to 59, where a New York team reached the World Series like every year but like fifty nine and and so and then the way that the the writers hounded you know Roger Maris when he was chasing Babe Ruth's record. And so it was something that I had never experienced before. And it became a negative at first for the Mets, well first for the Yankees in the 70s, but then for the Mets in the 80s, same thing. that the Mets team really and when you look at it with the talent they had, the one World Series seems like they underachieved with with the talent they had and, and a big negative that was going on was was that really negative press scene that they had and the Yankees all of a sudden caught fire in 77 and I was glued to the set at that time and I remember watching the Bucky Dent game on a Monday. It was just amazing the way that they turned that that leader on because I thought the Red Sox were going to cruise. And it turned out that uh, it, it didn't happen.
1: I talked to Goose Gosage. You know, he came in in the seventh inning in relief of that game, that one game playoff. And I had the pleasure of uh, interviewing him up at Lake Tahoe at the Celebrity Golf Tournament. And he's, you know, the final out of that game was Carl Yastrzemski. And he popped it up to Greg Nettles. And he said that, you know, N- and Nettles was one of the best Defensive third baseman that I've ever seen. I mean, I think he and Brooks Robinson, you know, to me, they were amazing. You know, in the '78 World Series, I think Nettles in games three, four, and five at Yankee Stadium turned around uh, that entire series. But Gossage tells the story: uh, Nettles hated pop ups. Okay, he absolutely hated pop ups. And Goose tells the story of Yaz popping up to end that wild that that one game playoff, and Nettles going screaming, "No!" You know, as if don't hit it to me. You know, you know what? You know what? You'll get a kick out of this I got I, I'm gotten to be pretty good friends with Mickey Hatcher and Mickey tells that man if you I don't know if you've ever had a chance to talk to Mickey Hatcher he's one of the funniest human beings I've ever been around but Mickey when later in his career he said he was playing first base and it was when Steve Sachs was having the yips throwing the ball to first yeah and Mickey said that they came back from a road trip and they go to take the field, you know, uh, and again, only Mickey could tell the story. He said there was three guys standing in the stands right behind first base with full catchers gear on. OK, and and in the very first inning, there was a ground ball to Saxy, and he threw it and Sax threw it over Mickey. OK, into the stands and Mickey yells out at Sachse. Hey, just roll the freaking and say freaking just roll the freaking ball to me next time. You know, and, you know, but, you know, because we remember Chuck Knobloch having the yips and, oh, you know, you, isn't horrible. it amazing when you watch and these were both great second baseman, both all stars. But Steve Sachs, who I've gotten to know well, and I'm sure you do, too, with his Sacramento ties. But think about how great of a player he was, but the mental block that he had over a period of his time where he couldn't make a routine throw.
0: Well, he was, uh, you know, just saw my friend Pedro Gomez with ESPN yep. interviewed Sachse last week to ask him about Jose Altuve for the Astros who had the same deal and he was bouncing throws. And even to the end, even when Altuve was was still hitting all the way through the, the series with Tampa, he could not throw the ball to first base. And it, and here's a, here are these athletes with God given ability that you and I would have killed for. And yet something gets in their heads and it became, it becomes like a psychological thing. To where they can't throw. And there have been pitchers before, like uh, Steve Blass for the Pirates in the early 70s, who, you know, was a huge part of their 71 World Series winner. And then he reached a point where he could not throw a pitch to home plate and and, and it, it just became a mental thing and he never got over it. And it's it's really, it's agonizing to watch when you know that these guys have the ability to do it and they can't throw the ball and they become mortal just like the rest of us and uh, I do remember Steve Saxon and I w- always wondered if the yips had not happened how uh, how much better his career might have been
1: Marcos you and I grew up with baseball it was a big part of our life the younger generation now not so much it seems are you worried about the health of baseball and let's forget about the pandemic and the impact that it's had on that sport but are you worried about the state of of baseball in this country
0: i am i mean the, the fact that the game has really faded in black communities is, a, is not a new story obviously and so that's been a major issue to me another issue that i really have noticed in these playoff series and don't get me wrong I, to me the the playoffs 2020 very entertaining i've watched every round i've tried to watch every game and i still love baseball best of all but it's become like this station to station game where obviously I'm exaggerating a little bit, but guys either hit home runs or they strike out. And there's, there's very, there's less of, you know, hitting behind a runner, stealing a base. And listen, what I'm saying right now is that new, but it, it seems to me to be even more magnified in the game now. And, and so you see a player like Mookie Betts of the Dodgers and he's a phenomenal athlete. And I think that his athleticism makes an even bigger impression on fans because there just aren't that many athletes of that caliber playing baseball. It seems like that the athletes have really gravitated toward football and basketball, far more than baseball. And, and you see, look, obviously there are uh, a good, there are a healthy amount of really dynamic young players in the game. But a player like will that stands out because there just aren't enough tremendous athletes like him in the game, and, and so he becomes uh, he this 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 larger figure in a sense because you don't see as many like him. And I think that's the thing that I worry about the most: that a lot of the color in the game kind of goes out of it because because it's become such a home run, home run heavy game, uh, and and um, and you don't see some of the great decisions that you used to stick. For example, like during the the Houston Astros series during one of those games between the Astros and the Rays, Dusty Baker from Sacramento, the manager of the Astros was going to go out and he was going to pull the starter. And he decided to leave him in and to listen to the national broadcast. You would think that Dusty just came down from outer space (laughs) and and did something that was just like, and I'm thinking to myself, he just did what managers always used to do. and, And that is, Trust your starter if you go out there and you use your own brain and your own heart to, to assess whether this guy still has it or not. And he did. And so it was it was Grinky, and Grinky got out of the inning and it was beautiful. And to me, it's those kinds of moments that I fell in love with. And they're just fewer and far between now in the game. And I, I know I sound like a grandpa in a sense when I say that, and not to say that I don't appreciate the game because I do, but it is played differently. And I'm not sure that the changes are always for the best.
1: You know, it's interesting you say that because I watched during the pandemic, uh, you know, the MLB network had a lot of reruns of games that were played in the 70s, in the 80s. And one of the games that you and I were just talking about, the Yankees and the Dodgers and Dusty playing for the Dodgers back then. Yeah. And Ron Guidry was pitching, and I can't remember if it was 77 or 78. But I enjoyed watching that replay, not because I'm a Yankee fan and they won, but because of the way the game was played, yeah. where you're literally, you know, you're trying hard to move a runner 90 feet, that it was a, a, an importance. And just the, the game took two hours and 30 minutes or it took yes. two, you know. Now it's ridiculous. You know, it's funny. I moved to the East Coast and just watching the baseball playoffs, I now get the complaints, Marcos. You know, if you're, if you're a kid – and you have school the next day, you can't even stay up to watch the game past the fifth or sixth inning. These games are ending past midnight a lot of times. I think that's also a problem for the popularity of the sport. But I'm with you. I don't like the way the game is played right now. I don't like that it's all about analytics. And it really is, Marcos. I mean, the game is now done on a computer before the game starts. And I I hate it. I'm worried about the future of the game. It's never going away. But I do worry about the popularity. And if the younger generation now, what's it going to be like when they have kids? Are they going to turn their kids Into soccer? Are they gonna continue to turn their kids into other sports and not baseball? I really worry about it.
0: Yeah, and I think that it's it's uh it's gonna be interesting to see what happens in the next five years. There's probably gonna be some labor issues coming up. And unfortunately, because the labor situation has been so fractured for so long that Major League Baseball doesn't do what the NBA is great at at really promoting its athletes, and they become Name players, uh, some often known by one name, and baseball hasn't done that. And baseball, I'm, I, I'm hard pressed to to think of a of a baseball player who could cross over and be really well known uh, outside of the realm of baseball. And frankly, some of those guys, some of those guys have begun passing away, like a Tom Seaver, sure, who used to be able to, you know, he would do endorsements, yep. major endorsements, and you would see him. On mainstream talk shows, not just sports shows, but talk shows, and he could speak to a, a lot of different issues. And you, for whatever reason, there's a whole, there's a whole lot of reasons. I guess you don't see that with with the recent generation of baseball players. They there's almost like a reluctance to step out and, and to be that guy. When those players used to be pretty common, and it's not as common anymore.
1: If Mike Trout walked down, you know, downtown San Francisco or downtown Chicago or New York or Philadelphia I wonder how often he would be stopped I wonder how often he'd be recognized that's part of what you're talking about LeBron James can't step out of his house you know Michael Jordan couldn't step out of his house you know I can go on on even you know the Aaron Rodgers who plays with a helmet on okay there's no way in the world Aaron you know could he might even be more well known for state farm commercials than playing quarterback for the Green Bay Packers but I'm just curious I wonder if Mike Trout could just walk outside his house and go to a different city and walk down the street if anybody would even know who he is he
0: could, and he has not seemed to have wanted to be in that role. And I remember the – I'm not a big Rob Manfred fan myself, but like a season or two ago, Manfred made a what I thought was a pretty innocent comment about about Trout not wanting to be that guy. And there were a lot of baseball writers who took Manfred to task. And I felt like Manfred was making a valid point. And I, I, if I were to extrapolate on his point, I, I think it's been – the last couple of generation of players who uh, have not wanted to be that guy. Ken Griffey Jr. did not want to be that guy. And he used to repeat the the phrase of our friend, Charles Barkley, I'm not a role model. And I always thought that was a lost opportunity. And you used to have players in baseball who, who seemed to like take on the responsibility of wanting to be that guy. And for whatever reason, they haven't wanted to be and i think that the i think that the game suffers somewhat it runs the risk of becoming a niche sport when your top athletes don't really translate outside the game because that's i think when you really reach a saturation point when when what your athletes do becomes something that you see all over all over twitter or it it becomes like all over tiktok uh, or all over instagram and some of the guys have modest followings but nothing like you see in from nfl players and nba players and i I think i'm worried about that most of all that that baseball has to figure out a way to market these guys to where they attract new fans because otherwise you start to baseball starts to become like other other facets of life where when the fan base gets older and older then you run the risk of reaching a point at some point where, where you're a lot less relevant. And that's something that definitely concerns me.
1: You are, as I mentioned, a member of the baseball writers association of America. So you have a vote. Where do you come down with the bonds, McGuire Clemens, that the steroid era, where are you at with that?
0: So I don't know if you, remember, if you recall, but when I was, when that, that was like my primary gig, I was very critical of Barry Bonds. And I would, I, th- I would argue, I think without exaggeration, that in the era that the last years that Bonds played, I think of all the writers in Northern California, I think there was no one who was more critical of him than I was. But a funny thing happened when I got my vote was that I began to really think about a couple things. One, Bonds, Clemens, uh, and a number of other guys. Uh, the list is too long to, to mention at, at this point. They're all members of good standing. Their records have not been altered in any way. The games that they played in have not been voided and they're eligible to vote and and you know some of these some of these newer guys have failed uh, ped tests and, and but but that first generation who were using, and I don't think there was any doubt that they were using they were using for a while there were no rules in place to address the issue of performance enhancing drugs. And so I felt as critical as I was a Bonds. And Clemens, I felt uncomfortable being someone who was gonna lay down the law that had never been enforced in the first place. And I also felt like that the steroid era happened, and it's, in some instances still happening, and that there should be some acknowledgement in the in the Baseball Hall of Fame museum that it actually did happen. And so, and I and I would wager that there are guys who have been voted in who also use, because let's face it, there's no incentive for anyone to tell the truth. On this, And, and so I, I think there's been rampant lying uh, about baseball. And so then it becomes like a popularity contest. And so I have used my vote to vote for Bonds and Clemens because the slippery slope that I'm on, and I think we're all on slippery slopes, we're all on positions that are based on our own value judgments, that I feel like those two guys were Hall of Famers with or without PEDs. Now, listen, I mentioned Pedro Gomez earlier. Dear friend of mine, he feels the exact opposite as I do. And he has not voted for those guys, and so I have been part of a bare of a slim majority, and slim majority does not get you in the Hall of Fame. You need seventy five percent of the vote, and at this point, I'm not sure. I don't. In fact, if I were to bet, I would bet that they won't. That Clemens and Bonds won't get there by a writer's vote. Maybe that a Veterans Committee later will take that on, but I, I think that the verdict. Is going to come down that the writers feel like that that should be disqualified.
1: This shouldn't come into play, but Bonds was an ass throughout much yes. of his career with the media and the writers, and they have a vote. Do you think that hurts him?
0: I don't think it helps him. I mean, I was around, but he was an ass. And, uh, I mean, if there was a bigger ass in sports, I didn't – I wasn't around. Uh, now, my understanding was I was in New York. And I, and I my exposure to Clemens was very limited, and he, he seemed like he had those characteristics as well. But Bonds, in his day, seemed to enjoy being a negative force, and he used negativity as a motivator for him. And what happened, happened. So I was on the, you know, not, it was never directed at me by him, just me individually, but I definitely was part of a, of groups of writers who, who felt the wrath. Uh, so I don't. He was
1: disrespectful. He was always, I, I was never was around the guy without him being yeah. disrespectful. He was disrespectful to everyone. And again, I wasn't around him every day, but every time I was around him, that was, I was like, wow, that's gotta be one of the most disrespectful human beings have ever been around.
0: He, it was incredibly disrespectful. I, I saw him be needlessly harsh, borderline abusive. Yep. When it was, it was unnecessary. So then, you know, you're depending on that, that group of people then control your fate. So not a bonds, but I remember with Rafael Palmero, 10, 10 years ago this fall, I went to Arlington, Texas to cover the 2010 World Series when the Giants won when none of us thought that they would. And before one of those games, I'm standing in line with the crush of media to get into the Rangers clubhouse. And who walks by? but Rafael Palmeiro. And at that point, he had been busted. And by that point, you know, it was clear that he was not going to get voted in the Hall of Fame despite 3,000 hits and 500 home runs, which used to be like that would punch your ticket first ballot, no questions asked. It's not getting in. And I want to tell you, Grant, the look that he gave us as he walked by us was withering. And because he was looking at the people who were going to keep him out of the Hall of Fame and and i understood that Palmera was not someone who i had to vote for but i did i did like i said i was on my slippery slope with bonds and clemens it hasn't it hasn't translated into them getting in but other guys who had sort of questions about them jeff bagwell and my piazza at the front of the line did get it and so so it's just there's no right or wrong answer it's just people who feel very strongly one way or the other and it's changed the way the Hall of Fame works.
1: What side of the fence are you on regarding Pete Rose?
0: So I never got to vote for Pete Rose. And no writer ever got to vote for Pete Rose because he banned for life. Uh, and so his name never appeared on a ballot. And so I, I tell you, so every year I try to, I post my ballot on the Facebook page just just for fun, you know? And, and so someone always comes at me with the Pete thing. And my, my response is always, I'm not going to talk about Pete because he's not on my ballot. And, and so I'm only going to talk about guys who are on my ballot. So there's that. But I'm of the mind, and I have been of the mind for for some time, that there's nothing wrong with forgiveness. He he clearly made a mistake. He clearly violated a rule that, unlike steroids at one point, the the rule on gambling has been crystal clear for almost 100 years at this point. And I I wish he hadn't done it. I, I think there's no doubt that he did it. And, and so so i and i maybe i'm wrong but i always believe that if he had fallen on his sword back in 1989 and said listen i have i have a gambling as a sickness i had a problem i i regret it i wish i had never done it i think that he would have been forgiven by now but he chose to do a, take another road and it, so 15 years went by of denials and then and then saying that he did w- with the publication of his book and so I look at Pete as like a tragic figure. Pete Rose should be in the Hall of Fame. And if I had a vote, I would lobby for forgiveness for Pete Rose. But I don't I don't think we're ever going to get to that point. And, and that's just very sad to me.
1: You are a guy, as a matter of fact, I mentioned you on my opening podcast because you're not afraid to put it out there. We live in very sensitive times, and boy, we know there are a lot of issues going on in our country. What's the criticism like for a columnist at a paper, for someone like yourself, who let's face it, what you write, you're going to have a lot of people like it and a lot of people don't, and then there's the venom and the hatred and all of that. How difficult is that to deal with?
0: To me, uh, it's part of the job. And uh, and I've always felt like you know as long as no one puts their hands on me or threatens me or my family or any way, then I'm gonna have to just live with it. I felt like uh, when I was growing up that the writers who I admired were the writers who viewed their readership as their priority, and that they used their access to try to tell the truth as as they saw it, with understanding that. We could be wrong, and i, I admit there, there are definitely times where, where I was wrong, or proved wrong. But the intention is to try to be truthful with readers, or to to disagree with readers uh, if you really feel way. And I have done that many times. I try to tell myself now, especially, you know, don't engage in Twitter. It's just—it's just not going to get you anywhere. And yet, I, sometimes I break my own rule. And Saturday, beautiful Saturday afternoon, I'm, I'm arguing with some knucklehead on. Track. <laughs> right. I mean, who's the who's the less intelligent person there? I am. But sometimes you feel strongly about things. But I, I definitely I try to be accessible, but but at a certain point you just have to move on. Uh, and I think the I think the most intense criticism I've ever gotten was when Chris Weber was indicted during a, 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 a paid pay-to-play scandal at the University of Michigan. And this was at the height of the popularity of the Sacramento Kings when they were, should have been an NBA winning team. They were not for reasons that we don't need to get into. But so the support for Weber and the Kings in Sacramento was at a fever pitch. And so when he was indicted, I felt like somebody had to hold him accountable. And then that somebody became me. And so, and I've told on myself in print, and i'll tell myself right now that the biggest regret i have in my years as a sports writer was that the reaction that i got for that column was so furious and so intense that the next kings game i did not i chickened out and i did not go to face him to face him i should have gone to face him and that's my as a sports writer that's my biggest regret that i allowed it to frighten me and intimidate me, and not and and so I I've never done that since then. We're almost twenty years removed from it. So that was the one time where it got to me. And, and then I'm so ashamed of it <laughs> that I've faced the music since then.
1: You know, and it's funny because, uh, you know, Chris has never done anything wrong in his life. Chris is I've never ha- ever heard Chris apologize. And, you know, it's such, a, it's so sad to see the continuation of Jalen Rose pleading for Chris to just come out and say, hey, you know what? I'm sorry. Let's all get together. Let's, you know, we're all brothers. We all love each other. Jalen Rose has been so outspoken about that whole thing. And here we are in 2020. And Chris still ducks behind all of that. I, it's so sad. I mean, even Pete Rose, we talked about him. He, you know, it took him a long time, but even he came out and said, "Hey, I'm sorry. Yeah, I bet. You know what I mean? But I never bet against the Reds. You know, blah blah blah." It's 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 too bad. You know, I mean, it's just it doesn't take a lot to say you're sorry. It really doesn't.
0: It doesn't, and I think that you know we we all make mistakes. In that case, it was a grave professional transgression on my part to not go and face Chris Weber. When I wrote this, and I it, and listen, I chickened out completely. It it has really informed my the way I behave since then. But I I do think that there are times when athletes could could just simply say, you know, I was wrong, and not have someone write that as a statement, but sure. just say it from the heart. It's too bad. It's too bad because we we lose nothing, uh, I think, by by being honest. So you know, thirty
1: years at the B. If you could go do anything over again, that's the one thing you would choose to do over that you would have gone and and showed up at the next game.
0: Yeah, I mean there are others obviously. There are obviously always things I wish I had written better, things times where I fell short or whatever. But in terms of in terms of when I look back uh, on my sports writing career, what's the What's the what's my low point? That that was definitely it, hmm. and, and it's more like my me holding myself accountable for allowing that. So I've I've faced like intense uh, criticism for non sports columns, uh, and gone and faced the music, and reached out to people uh, and said, hey, I want to give you your chance, and and a, a lot of times it, it it comes back, well, I don't want to talk to you. Well, okay, fine, but uh, so that 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 time where I should have gone and looked Chris Weber in the eye. Is definitely uh, in terms of my sports writing career is definitely my low point, and I always tell people about it because it's like we should um, stand up for our words and own our words. And I I really began to tell that story after I became a parent, uh, and I told my children that story so many times they're they're sick of it because like you in this life I think you have to own your words and if you say it you you should you should you should stand up for it and and sometimes we don't and so that's that was that's that's one thing I've tried not to do since
1: then. Last thing I wanted to get your opinion on, I've spent uh, really since June talking to as many people as as I really could. And I'm talking about people that I know. I'm talking about strangers. I went to different states. I wanted to really get a pulse of what was going on. And I got to tell you, I was absolutely blown away by the number of people that have told me that they're not going to games anymore. Now, my feeling is that the Kings were a 50-win team. It wouldn't matter what the hell was going on in society. The place would be full every night. But we're looking at the pandemic. We're looking at what's happened to Doco. No business down there. The fact that the Kings, as we speak right now, are not a good team. They're in flux. More management change in the front office. When fans are allowed back in, do you think they're going to have a problem?
0: So it's, it's a question that I've had from the start of the, the current ownership of the group headed by Vivek Renadive when it became a coaching carousel, when they they made um, the big mistake and fired a coach they never should have fired. And uh, Michael Malone, right? Michael Malone and everything has sort of tracked since then. And so my feeling was that at some point, the continued losing was going to be borne out in, in season ticket sales. And so it seemed that even though last season was still disappointing in many ways for the Kings that until the pandemic hit that the crowds were still going. But, you know, what happens when we come back? Is anybody's guess? Now I think there will be some people who who will, I wonder if we're going to be so excited to go back to our lives, whether the shelf life uh, of the Kings losing will be forgiven uh, a little bit. But I do think that a reckoning is coming for uh, Mr. Ranadive uh, if this current regime change ends up the same as the previous ones, because then at that point he's going to surpass the losing seasons of the previous owners, and and I think people are going to say, "Listen, uh, this is a lot of money to to go see an inferior product," and and. and based on a bunch of really questionable management decisions that were made that did not work out. For the sake of all that was invested in downtown Sacramento, I hope that's not the case. But I really have a it to me attitude with this current regime. And I interviewed the new GM, and he seems like a nice guy. But I haven't written anything yet because I'm done writing the little cheerful story about here comes the next savior. I've done that already. It didn't work out. <laughs> right. I, it, so I'm not doing it. <laughs> uh, i'm not doing it i understand and I'm gonna, you know fool me once shame on you fool me 27 times shame on <laughs> me. so I, yeah. I i need to see i need to see this guy uh, and uh, you know he's hiring all these people i need to see them actually put look this, here's how low my barrier is if they just put a team that played a style of uh, a, a style of basketball that made sense. That I mean, that's how that's how easy I am at this point. If if they were if they played hard, if they protected the rim, and got back on defense. But but if there is one thing that I cannot abide from the Kings anymore is to have an executive and then a coach talking about how important defense is, and then you watch the games and it seems like. They're thinking about anything but defense. It, it seems like they're afraid to make physical contact with the opponents. And so what happens? I think midway through that successful season where the team won 39 games, the book got out on the Kings. If you maul them and get physical with them, they will not respond in kind. And I, I think this is, this, look, it's, this is the NBA. This is ruthless. And I think people know, uh, uh, that if uh, teams know, if you play them physical, they won't respond. And that's what's happened. Uh, and uh, until that changes, you have a problem. So I, I need to see that happen before, before I jump on the bandwagon.
1: Marcos, I really enjoyed this. Uh, and again, for 30 years at the Sacramento Bee, uh, that's quite a feat in itself. Uh, it's been uh, amazing that we came in in the '80s, and I speak for most of the Sacramento community. Uh, you're a treasure there. The community is lucky to have you, lucky to read you, and I greatly appreciate you taking the time to do this. I had a lot of fun.
0: Grant, it's always it's always a blast. Uh, you're one of the best, and I I hope we do it again sometime.
1: It's time for Grant. Grant, 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 Grant. Today's rant brought to you by New Works Plumbing, a locally owned plumbing company in the greater Sacramento area for 20 years. They do repiping for tech and copper pipes. And if you still have a tank water heater, get rid of it and save money with an energy efficient tankless unit. They are a full service plumbing company and their expert professional technicians they're available 24 7 for all of your plumbing repairs be sure and schedule an inspection today go to newworksplumbing.com that's newworksplumbing n-e-w Plumbing.com for all of your plumbing needs and repairs all right so saturday night tampa wins that thrilling game against the Dodgers, and you would have thought that baseball is the greatest thing since sliced pie, and that the sport now has elevated itself to, gee, remember how great baseball used to be? It is back. It's back because of what? Okay, you heard me talking with Marcos about some of the problems in baseball. All right. But I mean, what happened on Saturday night? All right. I go on social media. I'm watching the baseball experts on TV talking about baseball is back. And yeah, it was a thrilling finish. Okay, but let's let's get something straight, would you please? The center fielder bobbled the ball. The catcher basically dropped the freaking ball and the runner coming around third stumbled. Now, is this Major League Baseball or Little League Baseball, all right? I mean, again, the game ended because of, really, three absurd plays. Center fielder, catcher, and the runner, all right? Pick on whoever you want. Tampa wins the game, and yeah, it was exciting. And again, Joe Buck, who gets killed for whatever reason I don't know, was great on the call. Hats off to Joe Buck. But stop it with this. Baseball has elevated itself to the king of sports in America. Are you kidding me? Put any baseball playoff game head-to-head with an NFL regular season game and they get killed. Stop it already. And also, thank goodness. Thank goodness for Fox that they had the Dodgers in the World Series and not the Braves who were up 3-1. Could you imagine a World Series with Atlanta and Tampa You think anybody would be watching those games? I'm not even sure in Tampa they watch the damn things. You ever turn on a Tampa game at any point during the season? The place is freaking empty, unless they're playing the Yankees or the Red Sox, and then it's full with either Red Sox or Yankees fans. Here's another thing about baseball on Saturday night. The game lasted four hours and ten minutes. A nine-inning game lasting four hours and 10 minutes. What a bunch of nonsense that is. So if you live on the Eastern time zone, how the hell would you even see the damn thing? Any kids watching the World Series that live on the East Coast? I, I don't think so. Are you letting your son or daughter stay up past midnight to watch a baseball game? I don't think so. I mean, the baseball's still got a lot of problems, all right? And yes, it was a fantastic finish on Saturday night, but stop it with this damn hype. Enough already. Enough. And that's my rant for today. Hey, coming up on Friday, if you don't like that with Grant Napier, my guest, former USC and NFL quarterback, former star at ESPN, now doing very well in Houston, Sean Salisbury will be my guest. That is coming up on Friday. Hey, thanks for listening to Marcos Breton. And today's rant, if you don't like that with Grant Napier, make it a great day.